Welcome to the Fair Talks podcast, where we educate everyday people for extraordinary change. I'm your host, Alicia Chan, Executive Director of Fair Trade LA, a community of business members, nonprofits, and fair trade enthusiasts driving proactive, sustainable solutions for a fairer world. I'm also a social entrepreneur with a passion for ending poverty and creating dignified jobs. Together, we'll explore how fair trade changes lives and communities and what we can do to address some of the world's biggest problems right in our own homes. Let's dive in. Fair Talks is brought to you by Fair Trade USA, the organization that brings you the Fair Trade certified label. Fair Trade USA is committed to building an innovative model of responsible business, conscious consumerism, and shared value to eliminate poverty and enable sustainable development for farmers, workers, their families, and communities around the world. Have you heard of The Little Market, an online fair trade shop co-founded by Lauren Conrad and Hannah Scavarla? If you're like me, I was thrilled when I learned that Lauren Conrad, the one we grew up with on the reality TV shows Laguna Beach and The Hills in the 2000s, was also working with artisans globally and even started a fair trade company. On an inspiring trip to Tanzania and Ghana in 2012, Lauren and Hannah had the opportunity to visit organizations working with artisans and entrepreneurs. They met admirable women who were making beautiful products but lacking access to a larger platform and essential resources to become financially independent. Combining Lauren's background in fashion and design and Hannah's experience with nonprofits and human rights advocacy, The Little Market was born. The Little Market is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the economic self sufficiency of women worldwide through dignified income opportunities. Their mission is anchored in the fundamental belief that every person has the right to safe jobs and fair, livable wages. Each product is made following fair trade principles, ultimately contributing to the life-changing, sustainable income and giving back to the people who made it. Stick around to the end for an exclusive discount code to shop at thelittlemarket.com. On this podcast, we've had some amazing conversations learning about the impact Fairtrade has had on farmers behind the food we buy, but I'm super excited today to dive into a different side of Fairtrade, the Fairtrade impact on global artisans who make handmade goods like jewelry, soaps, home decors, and so much more. Today, we have with us Doug Lapp, currently the Artisan Relations and Supply Chain Senior Strategist of The Little Market. Doug has more than 20 years of experience working in the fair trade movement, starting out as a buyer, then the senior buyer, and later becoming the director of artisan relations and purchasing manager at 10,000 Villages, another fair trade retailer we love. With such an extensive background working with global artisans, I can't wait to dive in and learn more. Welcome, Doug. Thank you so much for being on this podcast with us. Thank you. So many of us in the fair trade world would say you've had the dream job of being able to visit artisans abroad in person, dive into fair trade products as a buyer and work in artisan relations. So bring us into that world. Tell us more about your experience working with artisans over the years. Sure. Yeah. And it, I, I'll say that it has been just a, a privilege to have had this opportunity you know, the, the experience that I've had over these past 20 some years, I've had the really the privilege of, of being able to 
experienced so many different parts of, of the fair trade world. And so starting out as a buyer with 10,000 villages, you know, there was a lot of the kind of the nitty gritty day to day product development, quality control, market analysis, inventory analysis, dealing with issues that come up in the relationship with the different artisan groups. Um, and then yes, the, the, you know, the wonderful opportunity to, to actually travel and, and meet uh, so many different artisan partners and understand more about their unique situations, their challenges, their opportunities. So uh, yeah, that's been a, just an incredible, incredible opportunity. It's certainly the, the travel is, is not glamorous. You know, international travel can be can be quite trying at times. Um, I travel and, to Haiti, so I completely yes, understand what you're saying. Absolutely, yes. And one of my favorite places to visit, but also one of the most uh, demanding. So yeah, there's there's parts of it, you know, long days working. Parts of it that that are certainly not glamorous, but that opportunity to visit and meet real people yeah. and, you know, get to know them, understand the, the, the context that they're living in. That's just been, um, you know, priceless. And then also the other aspect of that that has been really rewarding for me has been taking that experience and helping to build the bridge between the reality that the artisan partners are, are living in and the customers and the, the stakeholders here in the U.S. who are really eager to understand more yeah. about that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's been, it's, it's been great, you know, just having that opportunity to understand more about the realities of the artisans, but then also to just having that wide um, breadth of experience in the fair trade world and what is required to actually survive and succeed. Yeah. I mean, you've played an important role of the advocate, you know, between the artisans and the buyers. Absolutely. So that's right. so amazing. And now you've transitioned to the little market. So you've yes. worked with 10,000 villages and the little market. So tell us about your new responsibilities there. Right. Yeah, and this is another great opportunity, you know, to to join a relatively new organization that's that's growing and trying new things. And so what I've been doing so far in the past five months since I've joined is really taking bits and pieces of, of all of those different experiences and skills that I have learned over the 20 years working within 10,000 villages and, and applying it to the challenges that we're facing here at the little market. And so that, you know, that can be um, the challenges of product development when you're working with, with uh, grassroots groups and rural settings, even category management and, and how you balance that with the needs of the individual artisan groups and then artisan relations. How do we relate to our different partners in a way that really honors them and honors the, the concept of equitable partnerships? Mm -hmm. 
but then even set, you know, things as mundane as figuring out how to structure a shipping program to be as efficient and productive as possible at a time when supply chain logistics are just, you know, unlike anything we've seen in recent history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all the important things to make the fair trade model work, right? Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I am excited to really do a deep dive into the fair trade model with you today. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I want to tackle is the difference between the fair trade model and Absolutely. the charity model, because right. fair trade works in many of the same areas that and communities that charity and humanitarian aid works in. But we want to clearly identify that there's like a difference between fair trade and charity. So I want you to help us break that sure. down. So just with your firsthand experience working with artisans, can you tell us about the fair trade model in the world of handicrafts and how it works and how it impacts the developing communities around the world? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'll preface my, my response to this by saying that, that there is a need for both models. There's a, there's, definitely a place for a charity model or a service model and then there's there's also an important place for the fair trade model so you know it fortunately it's built right into the name it's fair trade and and so it is a trade it's based it's a transaction based model and so really it's the transaction there's people on both sides of that transaction and then people in the center that are kind of facilitating that trade and for this to to really work and to be sustainable it's critical that the people on both sides of that transaction are getting something of value so you know i i think about how over the past what 20 30 years in the developing world in the US, you know, as customers, we have benefited greatly uh, by the, you know, opening up of, of international commerce. You know, if you think about the wealth of options that that we have, I think it, it doesn't matter what product category one is talking about it mm-hmm. it could be camping gear it could be biking mm-hmm. two of my favorite things but <laughs> you know compared to 30 years ago I, we just have what sometimes seems like unlimited options and and specialized things and and just you know it, it's it's opened up that world to us and in a lot of cases at prices that are maybe even less than they were 20 or 30 years right. ago, or certainly not significantly higher. So we benefited a lot from changes that happen in international commerce. Unfortunately, too many times, our benefit has come at the expense of the people who are actually doing the work to produce those goods. And what fair trade says is that just is not acceptable. Mm. Um, It's not okay for us to expect to reap the benefits and the people, you know, mainly in the developing world are are suffering Mm -hmm. as a result of that. And so fair trade elevates the, the position of the producers and said the only way that this makes sense 
is if they are receiving something of equal value and you know that's primarily earnings potential that allows them to invest in their families, uh, their communities, and see their lives improve yeah. over time. And so it, it's really, it's, it's a focus on both of those because the, there has been, if one goes back into the history of fair trade far enough, one can see where there wasn't enough there was, there was great emphasis on the, the welfare of the artisans. There wasn't at times enough emphasis on providing value with the, the products, providing value to the customer. And so it's really important to keep both of those aspects in mind yeah. when creating this sustainable model. Sorry to interrupt, but we got to tell you this. Did you know that Fairtrade LA led the campaign that officially designated Los Angeles the largest fair trade city in North America and the fourth largest in the world? We are a nonprofit that exists because of the support from people like you. Become a Fairtrade LA monthly donor to ensure this educational content reaches as many people as possible. Go to fairtradela/donate to pledge your support. Thanks for letting me interrupt. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, I mean it's literally using existing commerce business world and say, let's make a difference in lives with it. But I do appreciate what you said about how, you know, there's value in both, you know, fair trade model and the charity model. And I just, you know, seeing so much natural disaster happening in Haiti and all the humanitarian aid, I just, I would love to see more of a seamless, you know, transition from that emergency response and temporary aid to a long-term fair trade model, because I believe that is how to help people alleviate poverty. So yes, um, I guess from your experience, can you share some personal stories maybe you've seen of how the fair trade model has brought lasting change to a developing community? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple. Um, well, there's there's actually more than a couple. There's a lot that yeah. come to mind. Um, but I think about uh, you know in a partner from Bangladesh, and and this is a partner core the Jute Works that ten thousand villages worked with for many years, and it's also a key partner for the little market. Mm-hmm. So they've been in, in existence for for decades, and what what one uh, learns when talking with them is that many of the, especially women that have had started working with them maybe 20, 30, and probably even 35, maybe 40 years ago, when they were were young mothers um, and and you know trying to to provide for their families, the income that they that they earned with you know and also in addition to that is is often the ability to do a a significant portion of their work from home which gave them you know uh so much more flexibility in in how they um interacted with their families and raising children but those two things allowed them over the years to invest in their families and so you'll hear story after story of how one of those kind of original artisans with core worked with them for many years invested in education 
education for their children, their daughters. And those children now have taken that education and that has allowed them to, to um, it opened up their employment options. And yeah. so they could, they could choose to, to uh, pursue a job in a professional field. And yeah. it just gave them a leg up uh, mm -hmm. to just to continue that forward progress. And if there's one thing that is nearly universal in when talking with our artisan partners, it is that the ability to invest in their children mm -hmm. and education just comes up time and time again. Yeah. And I know there was a, a, an artisan I vis visited in Nicaragua and he and his wife had, had um, chosen to, like their, their house was really pretty, you know, pretty rudimentary. Um, but they made that conscious decision, like, that's fine, we're fine doing this. And then you ask them about what the impacts were and they start talking about their children. And, and in this case, they had th uh, three daughters and just the pride of being able to allow their daughters to have those educational opportunities yeah. that they didn't have and then progress into uh, professional careers. That was the impact that meant the most to them. Yeah, oh, that's what I'm super passionate about because Absolutely. again, with my work in Haiti, I'm just so passionate about helping them break that cycle of poverty. Absolutely. And with that fair paying job, um, a model where they could work from home. I mean, that's also a saving grace for, uh, from COVID during COVID to be able to that's continue right, to work. Right. Like uh, it gives them that chance for the next generation to break out of poverty. That is so yeah. inspiring. So I'm going to shift gears now and break down the fair trade model and the mainstream commerce or the mainstream marketplace, because there's a difference in that as well. So fair trade, unfortunately, still feels like a niche in the marketplace. And it is. And that's why we're here at Fair Trail Age, trying to, you know, raise awareness and still educate mm -hmm. people about fair trade. But obviously, we all, all want to see it become a norm. And I believe it is possible. And in my previous conversation with Paul Rice, the founder and CEO of Fairtrade USA, we we're talking about how Fairtrade business model is sustainable because it is a win-win scenario. The retailer wins, the producer wins, and the customer wins. So I want you to help us break down the difference between the Fairtrade model and the mainstream marketplace. Uh, what are the different key stakeholders and how can we maybe change the perspective in the marketplace and make Fairtrade the norm? Well, you know, the, the first thing is, I mean, it's interesting that, that you mentioned uh, Fairtrade USA, which is a you know, fair trade model that is different, maybe from, from the one that the little market or, or 10,000 villages would pursue. Mm -hmm. So the first thing probably is that there needs kind of the same way with, that I mentioned earlier, there's a place for many different models mm. to pursue some of the same end goals. And that feels important 
to an important part of, of reaching that goal of, of getting us closer to becoming the norm. Yeah. The way that, that I like to think about kind of contrasting the fair trade model that I have experienced at, at 10,000 Villages and now at the Little Market is to really think about that stakeholder question. So, you know, it's, it's the common in the mainstream kind of um, commercial world, the common definition for your key stakeholders has been customers, staff, and shareholders or owners. And that has been, you know, kind of a commonly accepted definition for, for many years. And I would say that, especially in a publicly traded company, in general, of those three, the shareholders have the kind of the, the primary, uh, they are given the highest priority. Yeah. There has been some, you know, there has been a shift there in the mainstream where customers are demanding more accountability, transparency, ethical business practices. And so there has been a shift to at least verbally giving credence to, to kind of opening up those stakeholders and talking about community. And, and in a few cases, you know, the producers, the, the model that's built on, on capital and capitalism is still going to give primacy to, to those initial stakeholders. So in our model, we kind of flip that on its head and staff customers still have, are considered key stakeholders. The difference is that we elevate the artisans, the producers, yeah. to be a, a, a primary, if not the primary stakeholder. And that, to me, that's a, the important difference about that is that when you think about for an organization like the little market, when we're making decisions about any number of things, but especially stri strategic decisions, how it impacts our artisan partners is a key part of the thinking when we or the decision making process and to me that becomes really important because it it's the 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 demands of the market are so amplified maybe is the word mm -hmm. one has to really be conscious about keeping the welfare of the artisans in mind. And so even if it's a, uh, you know, like a, uh, just a kind of a mental exercise, just to remind ourselves every day, mm -hmm. this is why we're here, you know, facilitating a space where they can achieve those long-term positive impacts. That's why we're here. And so it just makes sense to keep that front and center. And to me, that's, that's, a key aspect in the difference between the fair trade model and just the mainstream model. Yeah. And I think in my personal experience, and I think just this new generation coming up, we're just so inundated with things, right? Material things. Right. So we're just kind of overwhelmed with materialism. And I think that because of that, there is a shift in caring 
about the story behind the product or the people behind the product. So hopefully as we move forward, there will be more perspective change and just that, that space to think about and elevate the producers, like you're saying. So the little market is definitely one of the leaders in this marketplace, in this space. And in terms of just making fair trade products more accessible and mainstream, I love their corporate giftings and all their gift boxes. I love it. So I guess from working at the little market and just that experience there, how can the fair trade world do better in terms of how we communicate the fair trade model to Mm. not sound like charity based, Mm -hmm. but really Mm -hmm. more about the partnership and the collaboration. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's a great question. Well, okay. So, so one, one way is to make sure that we are always highlighting the product value to the customer alongside the potential positive impacts to the producer. And this is something that, that really I, I appreciate about the, um, the little market. You know, the, I, I saw a transition in 10,000 villages towards, you know, putting more emphasis on that. And it is really, I guess a way to think about that is to, is to go back a little bit further in time to the origins of the fair trade model of which 10,000 villages was one. But it was always, it was built as a based on transaction, bringing value. And, but there was a too much emphasis on the solidarity aspect. And, and to me, that's where somebody is making a purchase, not so much like the, the product, what the product is maybe becomes secondary. And it's more about, I want my purchase to show that I am feeling, I want to exhibit solidarity with this person who is suffering in Central America or wherever it was in the developing world. There's, there's, again, room for that, that impulse. The problem with that is it, it potentially, it's, it doesn't feel like a true partnership because it kind of confines that producer in that state of poverty, where by emphasizing the fact that the products that they are producing have value, they're functional, they're beautiful, they're, 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 they do bring value to the customers here. It really, in a way, it elevates them as entrepreneurs, as, as business people, as craftspeople. And so that could be one of the kind of the keys is you know, changing the language that we use. So the first is to really always highlight that, you know, those two things are, are, are intertwined and, and it, it's best to, to talk about them in tandem. But then when we are talking about, when we are um, sharing the stories, when we're sharing what the, the, the individual artisans bring to this, this transaction, it's, it's beneficial to, to try to avoid 
that you know painting their the picture of their lives as one of of hardship and poverty but more to talk about them in the skills they bring the experience the traditions the entrepreneurial spirit and then talk about you know the the challenges that they they might have to overcome Mm -hmm. but to really emphasize that kind of what the positive aspects that they are bringing yeah. to me, those are, those are two things that can really help us change the way people view mm-hmm. fair trade and the products that, that fair trade can offer. Yeah, no, it's so true. When I first started, I feel like a lot of the products made in Haiti are, were just advertised as a cause-based, right. you know, like feel good. Like they may not, be the best quality, but it feels good to buy it. But I feel like over the years, it has really shifted. Yes. And yeah. now a lot of the response I get is, wow, this is from Haiti. This is such good quality. They're right. so creative. Right. Like, right. And, and yeah, I think it is something that I know I probably have to be more conscious about. It's just like how I communicate because yeah, the products are good quality it's, it's like the marketing and how you communicate it that's important right, right. yeah so i know that both Ten Thousand villages and the little market are nonprofits who are also fair trade retailers which mm-hmm. means that besides selling fair trade products part of what keeps them going is through donations so as a small business owner and asking on behalf of other small <laughs> business owners is having a fair trade business sustainable? Um, from your experience, how can we get a be- bigger piece of the pie, as they yeah. say, and how can we take up more space in the global marketplace? Mm-hmm. Another great question. So yes, absolutely. Fair trade is, can be, and it is sustainable. You know, there are a lot of different models and a lot of different approaches. One is the the nonprofit model. Um, you know, there there are others that are maybe a kind of more of a commercial offshoot of a of a nonprofit umbrella organization, sometimes faith-based, sometimes just socially based. But there are also probably, I'm gonna guess like if one were to look at the Fair Trade Federation membership list, I'm going to guess that the majority would be for-profit. You know, some of those are, are, are small businesses where, where individuals have started them, have invested their own capital and, um, and then are growing through retained earnings. Um, there are others that have looked to outside investors to, you know, to be able to fund growth. And so, you know, in, in that goal of creating or converting a bigger slice of that pie into the, you know, the fair trade space. Again, it takes all of those different models, all of those different players. And and so one way to think about it is that how the different models have different methods for obtaining capital to to fund growth. And so with the with the nonprofit model, really what it's doing is allowing individuals who believe in that model, believe in the organization to 
invest, it allows us the kind of the luxury or the flexibility to try some different things that might not provide that payback in a short amount of time. It might be years. It yeah. might, there might be some of those where it doesn't pay back. And, you know, so our supporters are like, yes, we believe in what you're doing. We believe in your approach and we're willing to invest in you, invest in, in quotes, mm-hmm. um, we're we're willing to put our money into this model and we trust you to to try some things and we're we're knowing that some of them are going to work some are um so that's that's again it takes all of us working together um no and i think that the 10,000 villages and the little market really is the leader that's opening up that marketplace, right. For a lot of these small, small businesses. So the fact that I would call them investors or the stakeholders too, you know, that are investing in these models, they're really helping us open up that market, but helping us opening up that space. And so hopefully, you know, we'll get to that point where we are the norm, but yeah, we're definitely still in that like growing stage, that awkward, you know, baby (laughs) teenager space where we're trying to grow into um, out of a niche market. So I definitely appreciate everything that the little market and 10,000 villages are doing. And recently I learned that the little market just launched a new program working with in-house production team here in Los Angeles that employs survivors of trafficking. And I actually learned about this when I did an interview with a former garment worker in Los Angeles who was just sharing about her story, formerly exploited as a domestic servant and then Mm -hmm. a garment worker in LA. And then she started beaming when she was talking about her new job, working in the fair trade world. I'm like, where are you working? And that's when she told me the little market um, and how she's in the in-house production team and she gets to work from home. Another one of those stories where it helped her, you know, be employed during the pandemic and yeah. And just what a redemptive story for her. So tell us about this new program at the little market. Yeah, and, and this it's actually this is a great example of of you know how that the the nonprofit model and and those stakeholders that are are investing in that model have allowed us to take chances, try th- yeah. some new things, and it, you know it's interesting because they being in the 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 kind of the traditional fair trade space for twenty years over the last at least five years, there's been a growing conversation about what does it look like to have what might be called domestic fair trade? You know, the, the, the traditional fair trade model was developed based on buying goods from artisans in the developing worlds, yeah. developing world, bringing them here to, to North America or Europe and selling them. And it's just been recently that people have been like, yeah, but there are populations here and and in Europe that that are also marginalized. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's one of the great things that I I really, I appreciate about the little market because they've been on 
whether or not they they you know knew it in terms of policy, but they've been on that forefront because we've been working with several different you know homeboy industries in mm -hmm. LA for screen yeah. printing and. Um, what is it, the Downtown Women's Center mm -hmm. for Soap. Yes. There's a Prosperity Candle out of yeah. Massachusetts that works with refugees. And so what I like about that is, is you know, I've, I've been in those conversations where we're talking about like, well, how do we do this? How do we do this? Yeah. And, and the little Mario is just like, okay, let's just do this. And and the in-house production team is is one of those where you know during the pandemic there were supply chain issues and said we can get the raw materials let's try it let's mm. just do this and you know just taking that initiative and then structuring it in a way like you said you know structuring it so that the the individuals could work from their homes and mm -hmm. so it means you know coordinating deliveries and pickups mm -hmm. but it was it was it was just a, a a great example of taking that basic concept of elevating the artisan the individual mm -hmm. and you know saying how do we structure it structure this so that they can basically earn those positive benefits for themselves over time yeah. Yeah. It's so inspiring. And I think it is a needed shift because now we are dealing with immigrant workers, refugees. I mean, mm -hmm. it is a very prevalent topic, you know, here exactly. in the U S and in Europe. So I, I do believe the low market's leading the way in that. So I'm excited. Yeah. I have to go try some of these new products. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so that leads us to a fun question we like to close with. What is your favorite fair trade product and maybe a fair trade product from the little market? Oh man, that, that's <laughs> difficult. That's like asking yeah. the, you know, the favorite child. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, so what I would say, I would say that my favorite product from the little market are the the hand stitch or the kanta stitched recycled sari quilts. Mm. And what I like about that is, so number one, each one is entirely unique. Yeah. So you're the one that you purchase is not going to be replicated again. Um, the The second part is that the the craftsmanship that goes into that, the kanta stitching, is is just really amazing, and it's it's labor intensive and it's it's just done with with love. Um, yeah. To use a cliche, sorry, but <laughs> it really is. You know, you can just looking at it, you can just see yeah. the the skill and the tradition that goes in it. The other part is that it's it's a recycled, you know, it's recycled from from discarded saris, so it's it brings in the, you know, the recycling, the re reuse maybe I yeah. should say. And it's also a culturally significant because the the sari is is a, you know, an important part of the culture. And then, you know, the 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 thing that kind of is is kind of closes the circle is that partner that we're working with and and their partnership with the the women who are, are doing the work the impacts that that are um happening 
through the production and the, the, the sales of those goods, you know, it's really phenomenal. And so yeah. uh, it just kind of, <laughs> it's the complete package for me. You sold it to us. I'm going to have to include <laughs> this in the show notes. Yes. I know yes. people are going to be looking for it now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So we end every conversation asking our guests this question, mm-hmm. this one question. What is one simple action step you want our listeners to take after this um, to help create a more fair world? Hmm. Okay, one simple step. Well, I, I mean, since we're talking about trade and transactions, uh, I'm going to base my answer on that. And you kind of alluded to it earlier that we are we're bombarded with messages that that want to they're trying to teach us that just more stuff is good and the you know if you have this amount of stuff today then you want to have more stuff tomorrow and if you have more stuff tomorrow then you are smiling like everybody in the the commercials mm-hmm. and what the simple thing that I would would say is to be to step back from that and to be deliberate and conscious in our decisions about what we are purchasing and and purchase products that are meaningful, that bring value and are mm-hmm producing positive impact for the the people who are producing it and so so okay the the simple the the simple action that you can do is is visit the littlemarket.com and shameless plug here but it it really it gives one just a, a a very visual representation of all the things that we talked about because yeah. you see those beautiful products you you see the amazing stories you can you can read more about the in-house production team and and how that mm-hmm. has has evolved um so it's it's a shameless plug but there's there's a lot of benefit in doing that for for uh, your listeners yeah no i think that is a great action step and I mean, my main takeaway is, okay, before you buy the next thing that you think will give you joy or happiness, take a step back and evaluate the value of it. And what if we increase that value, right? By supporting a fair trade producer as well. What if we increase the value of our purchases in those ways? So yeah, such a good conversation. Thank you so much, Doug. Um, I look forward to shopping at the little market. Great. No, this is this was. Um, thank you for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure to be able to to talk about this experience and, and to talk about the richness of uh, of uh, the whole movement. Yeah. Thank you. The Little Market is offering you, our listeners, a ten percent off their entire site at thelittlemarket.com. Just use promo code FairTalks ten. That's F A I R. T-A-L-K-S-1-0 at checkout. You can always find more details in our show notes at fairtrailay.org slash podcast. Enjoy shopping all their gorgeous handmade products that are supporting women worldwide with dignified income opportunities. I want to thank the creative team behind the Fair Talks podcast, our executive producer, Juliette Bucherell, 
our editor, Caden Sullivan, our marketing team, Jasmine French, Elena Alcero, and Lizzie Case. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fair Talks podcast. Thank you for being a part of our community and sharing the fair trade message. Thank you again to our sponsor, Fair Trade USA, for making this possible. Now, are you ready to create change? The next time you're out shopping, just pick up one fair trade item to buy, like coffee, chocolate, or bananas, and make a difference. Ask your office, church, business, school, or your family to shop more fair. If you have any questions or want to learn more, head over to fairtradela.org podcast for show notes, discount codes, and additional resources. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And follow us on social media at FairTradeLA to join our amazing community of fair trade lovers. Tune in to our next Fair Talks conversation to hear more life-changing stories. Thanks for listening.